Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Hello and welcome to Bilge Pumps, which is episode, both simultaneously episode 9 and episode 6, by my memory. Mm. I am. Uh, hang okay. on. Uh, is that right or is that yes that is right i sent off seven and eight this morning so this is episode nine and six so we're episode 96 in a way already <laughs> <laughs> anyway it's the usual bilge crumps crew it's me alex clark it's which one of you wants to go first track here track nfl <laughs> and, and jamie from armored carriers jamie from armored carriers yes and today's topics are well, we're going to look at data security, as in World War II cables, telegraph cables and modern internet lines. We're going to be then talking about defence procurement, because, frankly, we can never get in that in enough. And then we're going to get on the first, second and third classes of ship design, which is a lovely idea which Drax had, and it's frankly pretty cool. And we're going to, as always, be endeavouring to not talk too much about the C word. Mm-hmm. Now, this is because we do, we do them once a month, so we get it all out of our system. But our trouble is they do so much and so much wacky stuff. We could talk about them every single week nonstop. But we to try and cover the whole world and the reality of things needed to be covered elsewhere. We are going to try and avoid it. But if we do break down, we apologize. Anyway, let's start off with World War Two telegraph hunting. Not, and that was almost just World War Two. It's, um, it's World War it's One as well. World War One, yeah. And, also, and World War Three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I love it. Whenever you start talking about people, go, "Oh yes, we send the data by satellites." Do you know how little amount of data gets sent by satellites versus undersea cables? You know, undersea cables take something like ninety-eight, ninety-nine percent of all the data load. So your satellites are really not a lot of the data load. They're it really not a lot. It, it would definitely only be high priority that gets to use those satellites while those satellites are still functional. Um, yeah, there's been yeah, there's been all sorts of fun stuff that Russia's been up to in, in particular, and see that wasn't a c word, um, where you know it's been doing things like um, superheating the ionosphere with uh, microwave radiation or or similar such some such, in order to basically blank out um, signals between um, space and the surface. Now this has been going on now for a few years in. Um, uh, in and around Norway and um, other Scandinavian nations uh, and having to put up with GPS signals dropping out and the likes and uh, has been the cause of various um, uh, formal complaints that have been responded with the usual, what, us? You've got to be kidding kind of response. But, um, yeah, look, this, it, it, and, and these days, you know, you've got uh, Russia boasting that its S-400s can shoot down satellites and, yeah, you know, um, everyone and anyone's in the business these days are shooting down satellites, I suppose. Uh, the Astra 45 can apparently shoot down satellites. The SM3 can shoot down satellites. We know that. Um, pretty much, I'm fairly sure the Chinese have a missile system which can shoot down satellites. Yeah, I forget what it's called, it. but I'm sure they jump up and shout, let's go it. I'm sorry, I have already broken our plan. <laughs> but, you know, uh, everyone a- has one. Uh, but, but but of course you don't do you really want to i mean the the problem is is that you you do something like that you start getting into you know even slightly out, uh beyond near earth orbits and all of a sudden you're going to have debris scuttling around up there for centuries 
Um, so if you start just uh, spotting those satellites out of the sky, there won't be any more moon missions. There won't be any more um, probes to Pluto because you just won't be able to get them off the planet. It's basically that bad. It's um, I'll have to look up the name of the effect soon, but um, yeah, it's, um, it's been been being very carefully looked at by a lot of um, very scared um, uh, astronomers and um, um, you know, space travel types who are saying, well, it's already getting very bad up there and we're actually not far away from the point where we, we, we might not be able to maintain um, space stations. But um, if you start blasting a few dozen satellites, then you're going to be literally getting billions of projectiles floating around for centuries to come. But it is, yeah. you know, it, the trouble is, the satellites, okay, the other, the best anti-satellite weapon I sometimes think could be actually blowing up your own satellite and then just turn it into a cloud of shrapnel which goes around wiping all the rest out. But leaving that, It'll do that. option... It'll do that for the next several hundred, several million years. <laughs> yeah, you know, there are benefits. Um, but you see, the undersea cables... There are so often forgotten, but they're still being. The thing is, they're still being laid. There are still being more added to every single year. More cables being laid. There are junction boxes down there. You know, there's all sorts of things under underwater. And you've got Russia is quite open about it. They have these little tiny submarines, which are the whole purpose is to go deep, find the undersea cables, and um, well, probably start mucking around with your communications because. People often think about cutting well, one, of them, one of them caught on fire last year, didn't it? One of these little yeah. ones, nuclear-powered, what was it, Loshirik? Loshirik, yeah. Yeah, caught on fire and uh, killed um, 14 of its crew, at least. Who were all very senior officers, didn't you notice that? And also from all sorts of different areas, yeah. They were, um, it was certainly not a minor, a minor group of people on board that submarine, which was certainly not a minor submarine. Um, you know, got to wonder what they were up to but simply the fact that this um, small submarine could travel a long distance with a lot of power with a, a lot of people on board uh, at great depths makes you wonder yeah what the hell has been going on already for the past few decades and it got it back it got back to its mothership mm. so yeah. which is the question is was it or was it under the heat the control of the crew getting back to the mothership were they still alive long enough to get it back to the mothership or yeah, was they... it under the control remote some remote control system you know, well, you know the, the story was the story was that it was still burning when it when it docked with the mothership and uh, several of the you know the crew got out and then you got various crew from the mothership going in to try and uh, fight the fire but also succumbing so yeah. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. What we're talking about here is, you know, Russia has built this amazing um, small submarine with hydraulic manipulating arms, uh, ultra um, deep diving um, pressure modules. Um, what for? And, you know, what has it already done? Hmm. And they haven't even had the good courtesy to cover it by calling it a deep, a deep diving rescue submarine, have they? No, they went so far as to call it a research vessel, I think. That was yeah. very original. Yeah. It's part of the Directorate for Deep Water Research. <laughs> yeah. What's down in the deep water that's worth sending nuclear power down there? <laughs> well, I don't know. 
Well, this is the thing. It's like when you look at the at the historical context, World War One, World War One, especially when when um, encryption and such with it was it relatively in its infancy and radio communications were not anywhere near as large or widespread. The fact that the Royal Navy was able to sever most, if not all, of the telegraph cables tele- that ran from Germany, it cut Germany off from in- international communication, except along very specific third-party lines that the uh, that the British could control and monitor. And that's how you got things like the 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 um, British government knowing about the Zimmermann telegram before <laughs> the the, uh, the people that the Germans wanted to receive the Zimmermann telegram knew about it um, and allowed them to... Sorry, to just remind me, what, remind me what the Zimmermann tele- telegram was. It was basically Ger- Germany offer, but when, when it looked like America might be being more favourable to, to the Allies than the Germans, the, they came up with this brilliant idea to ask Mexico to invade the southern United States to distract the US um, and Germany was basically promising them we'll support your territorial ambitions we'll offer you support you with like money and guns and such like no particular discussion or plan as to how they were going to get them money and guns <laughs> given that they were blockaded but never mind um, but th- this was I mean, it was it was twofold. One one part of it was that because the only uh, telegraph lines across the Atlantic now ran from the UK, they could monitor and tap those. Mm. Um, but also specifically because the the UK had made sure to to sever absolutely anything any telegraph line that Germany could use to circumvent them. It also meant that the telegram couldn't go directly to Mexico. Sorry. It had to go from. It had to go from. Uh, I think it was to Sweden or one of the other Scandinavian countries, from Germany, then from there to the UK, from the UK over to America, who were the people that were discussing invading, and then was supposed to be relayed by a commercial telegraph line from America to Mexico which then resulted in the Americans intercepting it as well. Um, so when, when, the, when, the, when the British turned around and said, yeah, by the way, the Germans have just asked Mexico to invade you, um, it was easy for the US government to check to see if that was actually a verified thing and not something the British were just making up to try and get them into the war. And that was kind of uh, one of the major reasons why America got into World War One. So it's, yeah, control the communications... <laughs> And it also forced it also forced a lot of German transmissions to be made by radio rather than by land, la, effectively by landline, which again made it things easier to intercept and and hard to, to transmit as well. Though. Yeah, <clears throat> and and it's yeah, it's one of those things. It's you can if you've got a line on your enemy's communications, you can force them to talk in the way that you want them to talk. Then um, you, you can you can you can control to a certain extent how much information they can get to their front line without you knowing about it. I mean, the fact in World War One, the, the high seas fleet had this habit of broadcasting absolutely everything at maximum volume to everyone who would possibly wanted to hear it didn't really help them, but that's a separate well, matter. Maybe they wanted to fight. Yeah. But the, um, <laughs> but the, 
yeah, the high seas fleet just wanted friends. That's it. They just <laughs> wanted to be friends. friends. Yeah, it's like we we have we have two settings: off and full power. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, but this you... kind of explain kind of explains why the Emden fell for HMAS Sydney broadcasting at half strength mm. um, off the uh, Cocos Islands, mm-hmm. making them think that the Sydney was much further away. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's 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 a lot of uh, but it's a lot of interesting interesting parallels because on the one hand that what the uk was doing in world war one was a lot more about tactical um and control basically making sure that germany as they couldn't talk to other people um for its own own purposes these days you it's kind of a in a lot of ways i i would suspect cutting the the, the, like the modern telegraph lines, the internet cables and such, it would be less about um, mili- a, a purely military manoeuvre. It would be more about that kind of soft soft power attacking your opponent's economy. Mm-hmm. Because it, let's face it, it with, would with, devastate any economy, wouldn't it? Yeah, with, with modern communications <laughs> equipment and encryption, the loss of the internet would be annoying for the military, but the military can communicate perfectly well without it um, via their own satellite networks because they don't have that much data to transmit. But yes, if you think at just how much of the world's economy is tied up with the internet, whether it's financial transactions, secure communications, um, or just... Okay. Uh, I guess the, the big question is, what will happen? Will everyone who can't watch their Netflix uh, binge, demand that their government surrenders, or mm-hmm. demand that they act immediately and invade said jammer or um, cable cutter. Well, see, that's the interesting idea. The idea is often put forward, especially if you go to certain nations, that the decadent West is weak, and if you cut them off from their luxuries, they will immediately fold. Mm. Now, this might just be the people I hang around with, but in my experience, if you cut us off from our luxuries, we tend to just get more pissy mm. <laughs> and slightly more intransient. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think it's this is the thing: is the you've got you've got this the the economic impact is probably going to be the single largest thing because if you think about, like, say, let's say the UK. Well, actually, to be honest, the UK, USA. Um, any country with a large financial exchange, you rely on large amounts of data being securely transmitted across the planet to, to conduct your financial dealings. If you all of a sudden you can't do that because you no longer have high capacity fiber cables connecting your country to everything else. If the London, let's say for the UK example, the London Stock Exchange stops working. Now what? It, won't, be just, it, it won't just be the London Stock Exchange. Oh, yeah. That, that's the thing. If you cut off more. one stock exchange from the others, especially one of the bigger ones, mm. you're going to have ripple effects around the other stock exchanges. Yeah, and, and then the others. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, but, yeah we, we, we've seen that. Obviously, this is clearly going to be, you know, uh, it's clearly part of uh, the thinking of, um, at the very least, uh, Russia, I suppose, because they are very, very busily at the moment trying to isolate their internal internet structure from the rest of the world wide web they want a russia wide web that they can turn off and on uh, or not, not turn off and on but you know drop their own firewall uh, uh, their own digital curtain on and keep it running 
um, both as a form of propaganda, but also as a as a form of internal resiliency, not reliant on external servers. Um, therefore, I suppose harder to to, to wiretap as well. But um, and, and it's you know so much so that the China, the, the sea country, um, is 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 apparently also very much looking at the whole concept of well, okay, we've got our digital firewall, but um, how do we actually separate our you know infrastructure as well? looking at the Russian model of doing that. So, you know, I guess it's um, you know, what was very much a ad hoc, everyone sort of connects themselves as they go along, random sort of uh, web is now very much becoming a nationalised kind of um, piece of infrastructure. Let's be honest, it was always going to become that way at some point, because how long were nations, especially nations which depend on absolute control of information in order to prop their, keep their governments in power, going to allow a system to exist which is completely, which is free of national dominance in terms of information transmission? And that but was always going to happen. And also, in the nicest way, it was as free from the beginning as we like to yeah. pretend it was. There yeah. is always the, the British influence from the beginning in its conception, and which is the people who built it, so Tim Berners-Lee and all this stuff, are still alive. And then you have the fact that, in the nicest way, the American involvement, again, the big companies, yes, they might be very free, very, very sort of, you know, we're not nationalistic American companies, but they are very American in their terms of their ideological outlook around the world and what they expect. And that ideology can be as much, they're even non-nationalistic, but their American ideology of freedom and their perceptions of what that means. But mostly the data, data harvesting for um, uh, yeah. profit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and these things are, can be very scary to certain countries. Hmm. Yes, uh, and, you know, look, but, but again, you know, it's, it's it's also just the ability to order a pizza, you know, or to, to do your grocery shopping. Uh, yeah. or to, You're uh, now making me hungry, Jamie. You keep talking about ordering pizza. So if you can knock out um, all of the all of the United States' ability to order a pizza online, um, you, you've you've got a major. Um, in a nice way, if you knocked out the US Marine Corps' ability to order online pizza, there wouldn't be a need for nuclear weapons. There would be an invasion and he would be dealing with it. <laughs> several, several tens, if not hundreds of thousands of angry US and former US Marine Corps <laughs> tearing up your border. Yeah, but I mean, you tell them they can't get pizza, they will swim to where your country is. <laughs> but the, uh, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the thing is, it's... It, the, Apart from anything else, it, it forces your opponent to react to you, which yeah. is, and it also me means that from a, I mean, not just the pure economic impact of, well, if people can't get services, they're not going to pay for them, which is going to have an impact on companies and such as what, um, and as a company's ability to do business. But um, as we said, that there will there would be a limited amount of data throughput possible with things like satellites and and short range uh, broadcast Relays. communications. But those things would have to be prioritised. You'd have to prioritise the, the military, the government services. For somewhere like the UK, they may may try, I suppose, and try try and jury rig some way of getting the the London Stock Exchange back online using satellite comms. Although, given given the fine tuning of just how 
how short a time it's like they measured in milliseconds some of these financial programs um make their calculations in the lag time of a satellite comms it might not even be worth it um but there's there's a hard cap on that and less even even uh less of a cap when you as we said if you if people start knocking satellites out of the sky but what it what it means apart from the economic impact is that the government of the country that you're attacking it now has to prioritize what are we going to do with our limited bandwidth space and now that then will automatically end up setting the government against quote unquote a lot of its own population because Half if you are desperate to listen to build farms yeah well exactly so that, that's a war crime in and of itself um <laughs> cutting cutting everyone off from our from our uh, ramblings <laughs> but the uh but, uh, cruelty cruelty if you yeah but if you think about it, it's like if if the government turns around let's say uh yeah let, let's say we have a a conflict with somebody who who cuts all our internet cables if we're in the uk if the government now has to turn around and say yes you especially at the moment you vulnerable people who are shielding and or in a more general sense you elderly people who can't go out uh go out shopping and stuff you now can't access your online shopping because we need that bandwidth for other things um and we can't afford to to ration it out because other people will abuse it for the sake of convenience then now that's the now the next headline is oh the government is killing our elderly to maintain this war do we want this war and then you now have internal division and that that those are the kind of things yeah it's like yeah a lot of the time the the whole oh well the west will collapse if people take away their netflix that's probably over exaggerated but once it gets down to the point of people dying because they can't access services that now they pretty much can only get online then then people start asking questions about is it actually still worth fighting this war if we're having all these casualties and and even if nothing else is happening even if there's no actual shots being fired um and and there's all sorts of things you imagine like how many if you want to follow the supermarket example how much of their infrastructure in terms of their ordering supplies in coordinating Mm. deliveries all of that is done online that's a lot of data to transmit are you are you going to allocate precious military or hospital bandwidth like how do you make the call between do we keep the nhs communications and medical uh supply ordering network up or do we keep the supermarkets food ordering and supply network up if we've only got so many so many megabits per second to go around now, this and this is ha- a big trouble this is when people start sorry this is when, when people start making the jokes about cyber warfare and go oh we shouldn't be we're funding that at the expense of the army and all these things we shouldn't be doing that well i agree we shouldn't be really cutting other services because we still need other parts of the defense force because we still need them mm. for the things we still need the hard power as well as but you the cyber warfare you do need to grow and half the money is going on resilience for these sort of things mm. and honestly we're talking about russia and other nations building their inter uh, building a sort of their own internet but you have to ask yourself why isn't britain why aren't all these countries all countries basically doing this just in case because things like shopping things like the online services you need to guarantee those and the government which stops running them in wartime mm. would be facing a very big problem yeah and we've got we've got a lot of and the thing is for the uk we're a relatively small country i mean if you if you ask someone like australia oh yeah build your own internet system like well that that's a lot of cabling 
Uh, I mean, yes, there's a, a lot of cabling in the UK. But then again, what is the issue, though? I mean, is the issue more the way you um, manage your nodes? Because um, the cabling's there, because that's, mm. you know, that's how I'm accessing you guys now. Yeah. It, it's, it's the actual um, infrastructure that keeps it all in sequence, all in tune, all in uh, talking to each other and getting one packet, mm. you know, broken into a billion packets and then reassembled at the other end. Now that's that's the um, that's the challenge. That's the problem, I suppose. Once you start uh, dropping off your major cables um, here and there, then obviously you you disrupt that flow. Um, but can can you you know what does it take to create a um, a network that can stand alone if necessary? Um, frankly, that's outside of my realm of knowledge. I, I, I don't know, but obviously you know. There are, Russia has put a lot of effort into doing that exactly that, something that can interface with the world while it wants to. But as soon as it decides to raise the drawbridge, it can still function entirely internally. Um, now, I, the problem may more may be simply more the fact that we have a banks here in Australia using uh, data servers based in Arizona. Um, that that might be more of the problem than the, the fact that the, the the internet itself is, um, you know, lacks resiliency. It's it's not the fact that the internet isn't resilient. It's the fact that they decided to put their data at the other end of that cable. Yeah, you know, that, probably that, because uh, it's cheaper. Cable because it's cheaper and it's there instead of building one here inside of Australia. Um, yeah. Which, if that cable is cut, can still be patched into the local. You know, cable mm. streams. And, and yes. let's face it, why else would you be building a nuclear-powered submarine with, you know, many fields of arms, if not to go into the deepest trenches to cut the cables at their deepest point in order to make it the most difficult to repair said mm. cable? So, and you see, this is, this, is, this is in some ways the genius of the, of the whole operation because it, it gives you a catch-22 as another nation. If if you've got this Lasharic with its with its manipulator arms going out there, then either you ignore it in peacetime, and you just hope you never end up in a conflict where someone cuts your cables, which is a huge strategic roll of the dice as a gamble, or you now have to invest in countermeasures. And it, it's a weird way in that it's cyber warfare, but cyber warfare done with with hard assets because. If you want to repair or even recover the cables, that means you've got to invest in your own deep diving submarines or you've got to invest in um, a nationalized cable laying ship. And to be honest, you probably want some form of deep diving vessel that's capable of going down there and somehow splicing or repairing the thing. Because a big like if you imagine a transatlantic fiber cabling ship that's got to maneuver very slowly in a straight line to lay a, a new transatlantic cable that has target painted across it in all sorts of ways none of which are good so that force it forces investment in that field it and as we said with, with the internal internet if you're going to internalize your own digital infrastructure that's a huge cost um, UK is rather lucky it has some of the nodes already in it that yeah. other nations do not have mm. aren't so lucky with that in that, in that and, scenario and when you say as you say with things like the uh with if you've got a bank in one country, but it's hosting all its data in another, then then that puts that puts you in both a political and a financial quandary. Because financially, you've got to be able to 
build and sustain the data centers in your own country that can handle that data in the first place. And then politically, you've got to turn around to say to, let's say, your, your theoretical Australian bank, you say, well, you can now, because you're a strategic asset for our economy, you cannot mm. host your data in the United States. You must host it in Australia, at which point they're going to go, well, hang on a minute, you're imposing limits on our commercial activity. Is this going to cost us more? If it's going to cost them more, then they're going to protest. If it's going to cost them the same or less, that means the Australian taxpayer is forking over the money to subsidize the data center. And you're going to have people in America angry with you because you've just stripped away a bunch of revenue from them. And they're like, well, what's the problem with America? Why do you hate America? Why have you taken money away from your ally? Um, and so it, it's it's called it, then you've got the potential pol for political division inter within between allies you've got increased financial costs you've got political costs and all of this is caused by just the implied threat of somebody building one or two deep diving submarines with some buzz saws attached it's, well, it's, it's, it's that, huge... it? all they have to do is go down there and plant a, a small mine underneath the cable hmm. And yeah, um, you know, just turn on the receiver and uh, can sit yeah. there and wait, or you know, a little guillotine or something. You know, it's um, it's, it's I see them that being more the case that uh, mm. instead of deploying a a, a trackable asset, yeah, in a wartime or in a time of high conflict, uh, you do it during peacetime to go around and put your little black boxes and all your little grenades or lipid mines in those key places and hard to detect places. Um, Wait, awaiting your convenience yeah but in, in a lot of ways it's, it's almost like the what i call the actual impact of the development of the torpedo boat and destroyer yeah because you you have obviously back in the 19th century you have the je Nicole thinking that destroyers will replace everything and that turns out to not be the case but if you look at the the ongoing cost that the invention of that device mm -hmm. had it forced the development of secondary and tertiary batteries on battleships it forced the development of scout uh, sort of scout cruisers at torpedo gunboats the eventual the torpedo boat destroyer uh, it forced extra displacement to be put into torpedo defense measures torpedo nets all the thing all the different things that were at all the cost that was involved in rendering your fleet not and not even immune but at least somewhat protected from the threat of a very small very cheap um boat equipped with a few torpedoes the, the country the countries that invested in that small fleet although it might have cost them money the amount of additional cost that they imposed on the larger powers was gargantuan and it's the same thing here it's like you okay lasharic might cost you a few hundred million rubles or whatever yeah, to build it, yeah. we have to, have to the, say it's not just lasharic but you know they're, no. they're using their spy boat that ships yeah. uh, other submarines a, and uh, you know uh, um are, are you, you know, remote pilot vehicles? Yeah, there's all sorts of uh, things they can build, but it, for the investment of a few hundred million of your chosen currency, maybe in rubles it might be a few more given the exchange rate. But the the, the amount of money you force your you're forcing your theoretical opponents to spend encountering you, or else face the loss of this critical piece of infrastructure, it's it's actually quite an intelligent move. Because even for the West, money is not infinite. And if you're if you're spending, this is the thing. It's like if if you think about how what's the cost of building Lasharic and a few related items, 
one or two satellites that might may or may not be kamikazes designed to induce Kessler syndrome and and as you say and a few high high grade microwave emitters that that's something that some the country like Russia can easily afford but then you think okay what well, how do we harden what's the cost of hardening all our satellite networks against Kessler syndrome what's the cost of securing all our internet and data services against attack what's the cost of um, reinventing high-grade inertial inertial navigation systems just in case we lose GPS. Russia's probably invest, if we want to even it out for currency, Russia can threaten with a few hundred million dollars worth of investment and force other countries to invest tens of billions to secure yeah. against something they may not even do. Yes, yes, exactly, yeah. yes. And, and that's, you know, it's very much what's happening right now. The whole mm. GPS issue is is massive around the world. Mm. Everyone's, you know, China's building its own uh, GPS satellite network, which makes you wonder why, because it's just as vulnerable as, you know, any other satellite network. Um, it's so that they can <laughs> say they built one, but we are <laughs> back <laughs> on China. <laughs> but, you know, I, I know that uh, you know, other nations are looking at various forms of... Um, quantum clocks to be you know, used as personal um, ultra accurate you know um, position locators so it's it, it's yeah, as you, you know, you're very right it's, it's definitely a whole downstream effect of, of um, all these things that we suddenly become reliant on and all of a sudden you, you've got to try and make resilient mm. so, and, uh, so you know, let's just remember you know even at the height of the Cold War, I distinctly remember your stories of, you know, um, submarines sneaking into Russian waters to tap undersea cables that oh. they thought were 100% secure because they went between one Russian city and another Russian city, but they just happened to go underwater. Um, so, you know, that, you know, can, a bit more, World War Two, I imagine, is a bit more uh, data um, reliant than World War One. Uh, what, what, what happened there? What's... Well, again, this, it's, it, you've got the, the implied cost because it forced the German, and I think this is the other thing, and um, this is it, it, it related to, to both the World War II and, and the modern day. This is why I don't think people blowing up satellites in low Earth orbit is going to be quite as likely as cutting the internet cables because if you cut the internet cables and other hard lines, you force people to use broadcast transmissions broadcast transmissions are a lot easier to intercept and once you've intercepted it you can get to work decoding it and this is the same thing with um with world war ii i mean it forced the germans to go with developing things like enigma and all the other various um higher end encryption methods that they developed that was a cost to them um but also Did they did they did they anticipate it in World War Two? Well, learn yeah, they they, they they had a fairly big um, big clue with what the, what the Royal Navy did to their telegraph cables in World War One, uh, but it also meant that in both World War One and World War Two, because it forced people to transmit a lot more than just use landlines, it meant that that has its had its own strategic implication for exactly the same reasons as I highlighted for in the modern day. Anything that is transmitted can be intercepted. If you can intercept it, you can de you can try and decode it. And if you're successful in decoding it, you now have a tactical advantage. So there is a military utility in it as well, because if you think about 
I mean, okay, maybe in the UK, it may not. I mean, there's some time sensitive issues, but it may not be so much of a problem because even if every landline was cut and the Internet had stopped working with the best will in the world, it's only about an hour's drive from Whitehall to Portsmouth. Um, and you can get most other places by helicopter, military helicopter fairly quickly. But if you're in somewhere like the USA, if if Washington makes a decision and it can't communicate with by landline to, say, Pearl Harbor. To, to tell the, the, the fleet there what it needs to do. You also can't fly there very fast. Um, so then you're, what's your choice? You, you must transmit. At which point your, your super secret orders that you want to tell the Pacific fleet where to go, what to attack, etc. are now out there for somebody to potentially decode, which is a huge security risk. Are you sure that people in Whitehall would be able to get to Portsmouth without their GPS? Mm. To be honest, the Royal Navy might be better off left left to its own devices, but we we have to have we have to give we have to give the politicians some figly. They they must think that they are important. Yes, yes, it is necessary. They must think they're important, but also in uh, there is actually a direct road from London to Portsmouth, so they literally just have to get on it, and it it, it just takes them there. You don't have to really follow GPS. There is a scary tunnel bit, mm. which might confuse <laughs> some of them, but you know you can carry through the tunnel, and once you go through the tunnel, you come out of the other side, and Portsmouth is not that far in, away. In France, aren't you in mm? France when you go through a tunnel? You know, no, that's the railway tunnel. That's yeah. the railway tunnel. This is the road tunnel. <laughs> if you're on the railway tunnel, you've gone the wrong way. <laughs> yes, yeah, but it's. It, I mean, it's. It is a legitimate point because it. It's. It serves a military purpose as well beyond the beyond the economic damage to the direct military purposes. It forces more of your enemy's communications into a realm where it's possible for you to try and intercept and decode, which is a, a huge issue. Um, because the, the the it forces you to have this catch twenty two of do you have the security risk of transmitting, or do you accept that you you now have to physically carry orders, <laughs> um, and, and and also do you trust whoever's on the other end to use their initiative or not? Yes, oh, and then and then all a of big one. And when when you're fighting a global war, if once if one side has knows that they were going to do this and has prepared for it and has backups in place, and the other side hasn't, then that introduces the the single most dangerous part of any military operation, which is the command decision loop time. If 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 your choice is if your choice is as the as the victim of one of these attacks is we can either maintain our command decision loop, but there's a decent chance that the enemy's going to be reading everything we do, or we now have to I don't know physically send USB sticks to people via jet, and thus our, now our command decision loop has gone from minutes to hours. Well, at that point you might as well give up and go home because, <laughs> because the enemy can react to you far faster than you can react in return unless as you say unless you're prepared to entrust um your strategic assets to people making decisions off their own initiative which Wait, fair enough you might you might choose to do that you might have to do that but then what happens when something if when something goes wrong in which case are you adopting the finnish model 
because of course the Finnish have a whole idea around their defence that they are possibly going to be overrun by the the Soviet Union or something during Cold War. So they developed a very deep, uh, low-level command structure in that, uh, you know, the local command structure was trained to take uh, take control and do things. And because they were conducting it in the overall strength of the operation, the overall plans, that was fine. Yes. So locally, really low-level commanders would take very, very major decisions. And you'd often find on exercises that forces would be doing completely different things than you thought they were going to do. They'd be achieving their objectives, but they do it a completely different way than the higher command thought they were going to do it. Because the local commanders would take a very, very, uh, you know, a, lo- a relatively low-level low commander, a lieutenant or a sergeant, would be taking a very major decision about how they were going to do it. And they'd also know their terrain. Yes. Mm. And, you know, this is the sort of thing, this event then feeds into your defence procurement, which luckily is our second topic. <laughs> because, of course, we currently all have all these issues with COVID-19 and all these things going around. Lots of people that are coming up with different ideas of... Oh, we need to start cut. We um, need to say it. And it's, going we've, we've, all, we've all heard about your difficulties getting decent webcams. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Yes, my de- difficulties getting decent webcams. We won't go there. Webcams are just <laughs> impossible. So if you, if you can't get a decent webcam, how the hell do we get a decent worship? I, I think I do have a slightly decent webcam now. I think this mm-hmm. is. I, I think the new one's been working quite important. well. Yes. Yeah, the picture quality is a bit better. Yeah, it's the new one. It's the one supplied by the university. It's not massively great, but it does seem to be better. Yeah. But, you know, in a nice way, I'm looking at the sort of the procurement decisions going on. And we've just been talking about cyber and the marine side and the physical side of cyber procurement. You think about it, there are so many different areas. The thing is, what I try to always explain when I'm teaching it is that War doesn't really lose areas of confrontation. It does gain them, though. And there is often the idea that this new area of confrontation is going to replace an older area of confrontation. It rarely does. It usually just becomes a new area of confrontation, and you still have the same old ones as well. And if you ignore it, then someone will just come after you in the old method. Yes, and it will work very well. And this, I have to say, is what I'm worrying about when I keep hearing Commando 22. 21 or whatever the, the Royal Marines are now calling it. I'm not sure if you've um, seen this, Jamie. But basically, the, the, the Royal Marines idea is to go uber light. Basically, they are becoming super, super light. Because the option, the two options you had were we procure an 8 by, uh, four, an eight, by 8 vehicle which can do actually drive onto the shore and can give us some organic mobility and actually gives us a bit of firepower and turns us into basically a marinized version of the seat of the strike brigade or you can go so light that we're pretty much the SAS in terms mm. of our size and equipment and the Royal well, Marines let's, given let's the choice of two have decided to go yes yes I think the choice may well have been to go ultralight or bye-bye. That is a so possibility. Would you, would you rather have a ultralight force that's very very hard to cut from, which I suppose also means mm-hmm. bye, or do you go try and go for procurement that you'll know, you know you're not going to get and therefore very much look as though you are expendable. So if you look as though you are very efficient, very lean and mean, um, let's face it, it's the politicians that you're um, fighting here, um, maybe that's the best way to go, because otherwise you might not have a Marine Corps. 
Well, again, it comes it comes back down to this whole thing of are people willing to put the money where the where the mouth is in terms of their ambitions? Because a country that just wants to look after its own fisheries and its territorial waters probably doesn't need a Marine Corps beyond beyond a handful of uh, basically security detachments for boarding and inspection of vessels, which can be trained sailors. Yeah. But if you actually want to do anything more than that, if you have overseas possessions that people historically have been looking in askance of and maybe want to take away from you, you need to have something that you can go in there and say, actually, no, you're, we, uh, we reject your, your ideas of uh, map boundaries being redefined. So, so very quickly, what, what was the model being used by the Royal Navy in at least the first half of World War II? You know, um, you always hear of you know a turret, one of the one of the gun turrets being manned by Royal Marines, um, various sections of the ship being operated by Royal Marines. Occasionally, a major of the Royal Marines leading the um, strike group on um, you know Palembang or something along those lines. They didn't seem to be this um, U.S. model of a standalone version of the army that was ready to go where you wanted to go at, at the drop of a pin. Um, it seemed very much more to be an integral part of a ship that could be repurposed when needed. Is that it's, what, um, this is, is this something that's going, they're going back to, or is this something that, uh, am, am I missing something here? Well, you see, they could be going back to that model, but I'm not quite sure they are. What it used to be was they were an integral part of a ship. They'd man one of the turrets and these sort of things, but they were also, the moment they, you must remember, if you've got a navy distributed around the world, which is basically your global police yes. force and presence force, yes. they're going to need ground troops occasionally. Right. Mm. And rather than carry the army with them, because the army were, let's be honest, at the time were smelly, oily, and had a different command and rule structure, and frankly, we'd rather not need them than our nice, clean ships. I, I, I'm not saying about the current army. I'm talking about the Navy's view in the late 1800s, early 1900s which some of the army may be forced to concede. But leaving that to one side, uh, basically the Marines were there as your sailors and soldiers too. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they'd be part of the ship's company, but then when they needed to land, if it was dealing with the Boxer Rebellion or all sorts of time issues, mm -hmm. issues, they were actually trained soldiers to fight on shore. So they were really sort of elite already. Then you have so World War Two come so along and the not really, So it's not really Commando 2, it's Commando 3. Yes. Because you've gone to this US-style uh, dedicated um, you know, troops to storm the beaches. No, it was never US-style. Now you're going back. Now you're going, well, you, know, you did have your HMS Ocean. You had your Fearless, your Intrepid. I, I wouldn't call it US-style, though, because it's, it's when you look at the Royal Marines in World War II and how they developed the Special Operations Brigades, and it's very much, it, it, it's going to sound strange, the U.S. style Second Army, they had their own integral tanks. They have everything integral. The U.S. Marine Corps is very much an integrated force. The Royal Marines had their armor and logistics come from the Army. Their engineers come from the Army. They, their medics come from the Navy. And they were these commando forces, light forces, which were mainly for operating in very much uh, after World War II up in Norway again, which had been their World War II stomping grounds. So sort of Royal British Commandos. So basically we went from 
we are now going to be we are operating in Norway because we have because of war to we're operating in Norway because that's we have the experience and well we have all you guys and you guys will just have fun versus the third shock army won't you mm-hmm. it's going to be nice an entire shock army versus a brigade of raw marines and let's now <laughs> in a in nice way raw marines in the cold war they are some really, really brave people. But in, if you think about it, if it had turned hot, I'm not quite sure who would have come out that best. The third shock army with all their tanks, which not necessarily couldn't actually maneuver around the ter- terrain in Norway or Scandinavia, or the Royal Marines who didn't have any tanks but could have skied around everywhere. Well, again, it's about knowing your terrain and knowing your job. And I guess that's the point. What is the job of the new Royal Marines? Um, well, I have a feeling it's pilot recovery if an F-35 gets shot mm-hmm. down. That one seems to be quite heavily up there. Uh, they, the trouble is with going as light as they're going. They're talking about precision strike. They're talking about getting into the, very much into the special operations sphere of what they're going to be doing. You know, they're basically projecting themselves as a wider special operations force. And you sit there and go, that's lovely, but we already have the SBS, the SAS, the Special Reconnaissance Regiment, and I think we have a fourth one as well somewhere as well. And we're not that massive a country. At a certain point, you sit there and go, do we need another special force versus do we need, Mm. you know, I was always, whenever looking at the strike brigade concept for the army, I was sitting there going, that's a lovely idea. I'm not sure it works for the army, but if you had it for the Royal Marines that they would deploy with this force organically... Mm. Suddenly, that works as a good idea because you have the ship turned up and they're straight off and gone. Whereas the army one for the concept is, well, what's going to happen is the Royal Marines are going to turn up somewhere. They're going to seize a landing area. Then we're going to bring in a load of Roros, offload from the Roros to whatever Royal Navy facilities we have to offload it from the Roros and put it on the beach. And then from there, the strike brigade is going to work. I think we sit there and go, that's going to take a little long time. I think the Falklands show exactly the dangers of this current theoretical approach where they want to go ultra light and illustrates exactly why you need something with a bit more punch to it. Because um, when you look at the the Argentine initial invasion of the Falklands, even though the for various reasons, the strength of the Royal Marine garrison there was temporarily almost double what it normally was. At the end of the day, it was, what, 40, 50 people with personal weapons? They fired so, a lot of ammunition yeah. and did a lot of fighting, but, you know, there's how the, much at, you can do. Yeah, but the thing is, at the end of the day, when the Argentinians showed up with sort of actual semi, well, semi-armoured vehicles, the amphibious vehicles not particularly heavily armoured, but still proof against rifle calibre ammunition, there's a certain, there's, there's only so much you can do. And obviously, therefore, the Falklands were captured and then you had the whole Falklands War, whereas. And then this is the problem. If, if you if you're using your Royal Marines as the, the, the way to get troops on the ground to kind of draw a line and say, no, there's actual armed British service personnel here. Do you really want to push it? Which, let's be honest, is what the Royal Marines will end up being used as. Yeah. Then if they're if they're ultra light and they're basically down to man portable weaponry. Most people who have actually thought about what they're going to do and are plan have been planning this for a while, which is probably the situation going to end up in. As long as they bring some form of tank, you're stuffed. 
because there's not a lot you can do to a tank with an SA-80. Um, you could maybe you could shoot maybe shoot out some optics or whatever. That doesn't stop it driving over you um, or somebody. <clears throat> and and I think this is the thing. It's what I, what I call the T-34 rule of, mili- of the military. Can, can your operation be defeated by someone breaking a T-34 out of a museum? If so, you haven't got the correct amount of firepower. If you've got the, if you've got at least some form of light armor, even if it's a modern version of a of a scorpion or something, then that means that yes, in theory, still, if somebody comes at you with enough armor and air support and such, like you will still lose. But it requires a hell of a lot more investment in. The operation from the enemy side and a lot more commitment because so just, just one quick, take more casualties yeah one quick, and, question and from, one quick question from ignorant aussie here why the hell don't you have an army garrison at the fort because the army takes a long time to get anywhere the marines yeah. can get Garr- some, the, Garr- the, garrison, garrison, garrison garrison oh there's a garrison in the falklands now there's, yeah. there's, there's one of the biggest air bases the uk owns in the falklands now but at the time it wasn't and this is the thing with all the various trouble spots that you you can have the army will take a while to get somewhere the the royal marines can get there quickly and if you've if you've got the punch to make it back back up the, the main thing with this the whole falkland scenario and the reason i brought that up is because you can say here's our red line here's our british service personnel but there's there's a certain level of escalation involved in shooting at them and there's another level of escalation involved in actually killing them in large numbers and if you can say, okay, well, yes, we understand you brought in your ultralight Royal Marines unit, but we're just going to surround them with three dozen tanks and a couple of helicopter gunships, and we know that they can't do anything about it, and they know they can't do anything about it, and then we just put a few rounds of suppressive fire in, any sane and sensible commander at that point is going to say, right, well, we have no choice here. The only option is or die. This serves no purpose. Therefore, we surrender. Therefore, you, although you've threatened the lives of British service personnel, you probably either haven't killed any or if you have, you've only killed one or two, which means that the, the, the level of escalation is less. And therefore, you might feel more confident with pushing forward with your operation. Whereas if that same Royal Marine um force is sitting there with a couple of light armored vehicles um maybe a surface to air missile battery or something then either you have to commit a huge amount more forces of forces which you might not have to hand or if you're going to go in you're going to take casualties and the royal marines are going to take casualties and whilst you might think that diplomatically you can persuade the uk to give up on whatever it is that you want to take over on the basis of we'll give you your captured marines back you're definitely not going to get the uk to give up when your offer is we'll send you back the hundred coffins yeah it's a completely different level of escalation involved this is the thing you know this is why i also it's gonna sound strange when i'm looking at the royal marines i'm going you've got a program which is actually the u.s marine corps apc program actually i'm not quite sure it was, was a good fit because the u.s marine corps has to re- remodel itself for but actually that's a perfect fit for the royal marines because it takes a small number of people you could have a couple of them in a unit 
uh, a small number of people and they can take so much more equipment with them. So if their Royal Marines, their main advantage is always that they are so well trained with all the different types of equipment. But the trouble is they can't carry it all, not even the Royal Marines. Whereas if you've got a, in Max's way, an 8x8, even if it's got a gun on top of it and some missiles, that's even better. That's brilliant. It's, it's going to make your lives a nightmare to try and take them. But they're going to have their surface-to-air missiles. They're going to have their anti-tank missiles in there. They're going to have their heavy machine guns. And by gom, if you've got the two vehicles to move them around, and you might only have 16 to 20 troops there, but that's still going to be a big force. If you've got four of them, you've got 40-odd troops, and you've got four vehicles, and suddenly you've got a problem because those four vehicles become... It can set themselves up as individual fire points, which, if the troops need to, they can bug out in. And suddenly to try and kill them, to try and think it becomes that much bigger. If they are the Royal Marines, they are going to end up being used as your tripwire force. And even if we do go to these new, I, I, I don't know, the little ship, uh, basically I think their plan is actually to use the Bay class as the forward base ship for the Royal Marines now. In which case, that's perfect. They've got landing and they've got LCUs. So if you really want to, you can use boxers. If you want to, just add some onto the armies already by boxers for the strike brigade. And, uh, you know, get them ashore with landing craft. I'd prefer to have my own, you know, vehicle which could get me ashore. But if you want to use the boxes, use the boxes. I, I don't mind. But the thing is, not having that sort of vehicle ability in there, going the ultra lightweight is making, is putting your forces at a risk. Because you can stand up now and say, we're going to use them for light strike missions. We're going to use them for counter piracy. We're going to use them for this, this, this. The end up, they are going to be used as a tripwire because they are going to be your forward deployed force. In all of the talks, they're always the forward deployed ones. They're always the ones on the ship sitting off the dangerous zone, in which case they're going to be deployed in as a tripwire because someone's going to think that's going to try. And your thing is, if you're sending them as a tripwire, they need to be properly supported. So if you're planning on scrapping those ships, do you then use your paras instead? Backed up by those, backed up by those um, uh, light commandos manning X turret. Uh, you know, it, it, it's the old thing. It's, it's the paras are even more at a problem at the moment because I have a great respect for the parachute regiment for what they're trying to do. But I'm looking at modern warfare and I'm going more and more. I'm looking at you know, you guys have to by default are going in light. If you look at the US US Airborne, they're actually developing a light tank for them. And if that does work, then I would hope that a parachute regiment would get some of those light tanks for them. Because, frankly, otherwise, you're, again, the same scenario as you're doing with the Royal Marines. And it's, it, it's if you look at all the... The only nation which seems to be concurrently talking about getting rid of its heavy equipment is the British. If you look at the Australians, you look at what they've been doing with their land warfare, and especially for the ones focused for going for the regiments going to operate from the Canberra class, you know, they are looking at this sort of equipment. Look at US, look at Norway, look at all these nations. They are adopting this sort of equipment. They might be having not having the same numbers. They might be doing all sorts of things, but they are adopting this equipment because it's part of the literal battle space. It's part of the marine battle space. You know, in nicest way, we all notice this with warships. The weapons are getting more and more powerful. The same thing's happening on land. And mm -hmm. that's your problem. If you're, if you're light infantry deployed, you might have some very powerful individual weapons, but you've only got what you can carry. 
Okay, you're dropped in by a helicopter. That's wonderful. You can't carry a lot on a helicopter with a load of people. Unless the helicopter's going to make a second route and going to come back again and again. And the trouble is, if a helicopter keeps coming into the same place, it makes it very exposed to being taken out by a half-decent enemy with a surface-to-air weapons missiles. And they might not be surface-to-air missiles. They might just be an RPG. Black Hawk Down has told us mm-hmm. uh, is a great example of what happens when you have to have aircraft resupplying people in an urban environment. You know, it's it, it's predictable. It's problematic. Yeah, but you know, we've uh, also got to pay for it. I guess one of the questions that's coming out of this for me is, you know, have we gone well past the era of having an army, a navy, and air force? Do you just need a combined arms unit? Well, that's the interesting thing. Didn't the Canadians try that, and now they're going back to three separate services? That one's a bit beyond me, I'm afraid. Yeah, I I think think, they did at one point. They tried to combine everything. I think the trouble is, it's going to sound strange, It's you want to combine the capabilities in terms of operations, but something you need to do... uh, Once you try and combine the free services in terms of... If you're operating a very localised force, that's one thing. But the moment you're going around the world, the personalities you need to promote to command and the things you need to train to become a naval officer versus a army officer versus an air force officer in terms of the senior ranks. Well, not in terms of the senior ranks necessarily at the strategic level, but in the sense of the commanding ranks of your operative units is different enough. It causes problems if you're trying to combine it. So if you're trying to actually operate as a global force, and actually Britain is always saying it's trying to operate as a global force, uh, most of the Anglosphere nations talk about operated global force. Drac, you are making me so jealous by drinking Iron Brew. That's cruelty. <laughs> After drinking 20 litres, I'm off it for five days, so that's just being mean. I, <laughs> terrible. You know, it, it, it's just... It, it, the thing is, if you're operating these things and doing all this, you have so, to, to an extent, you have you have to start to inoculate the officers up to that level. I do admit, once you get to the past the rank of one star... Once you get round to the two star above, sort of, I do start to wonder whether you do really need to have the separate services because at that level, especially when you're looking at the British command structure, there isn't a lot difference. They're mostly commanding from home and moving pieces around the chessboard, but that probably get me into trouble with a lot of raw there's, 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 there's always a problem for no matter what your field is, whether it's military or corporate or you know, it's <clears throat> the, the old trap of being a jack of all trades but a master of none. So you need to be a master of your trade, I suppose, if you're out there yes. fighting for your life, don't you? Mm. You do. And again, it it, it, come, it loops all the way back around again to what we said earlier, with which is, are people are are people prepared to put money where their claims are? If you want to act, if you want to say that you're a global force, you have to supply your defense forces with the money for them to actually do so against the threats that they're going to run into you can't and all of those roles a lot of those roles are very specialist yeah you can't you can't pretend to be a global force and pretend that the world is the 1990s where nobody outside the west has an organized military that can sail more than 20 miles off of its coastline without getting horribly lost you you have to acknowledge the current reality if you if you try and be a global force on a budget these days well i'm sorry but there's plenty of other people out there who want to be a global force who aren't going to be doing it on a budget and they will win (laughs) 
So speaking of budgets, what about your class A, class B, first mm. like first rate, second rate, um, frigates, second rate submarines? Mm. Yeah, built, well, they built, built for but not with. Yeah, this 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 idea I came up with um, on the basis of looking at various. Um, shall we say, various ideas that different navies have put forward and in some cases tried to implement. And it's this whole discussion as to just how many hull types do you need? And when, when you go back to sort of the, the, the late 19th, early 20th century, you have the first, second and third class of protected cruisers. You have the first and second class armoured cruisers. You have first and second class battleships i mean there is technically a third class battleship but that's basically ship we have around to threaten people with but we wouldn't actually put in the front line of anybody serious but is good for beating up people who don't have gunpowder yet um and you, you and even it looks have... pretty on a chart that we have yes. extra battleships yeah and when you have a naval review <laughs> and an extra few shiny hulls at the end if you quite quite paint over the right spots yes. yeah um, and then you even have first, second and third class torpedo boats. So you have the, your first class. Well, the first class effectively is what is about to become the destroyer. You have your second class coastal defense types. And then you even have your little third class ones, which you can sling onto heavy davits and take with you on a mothership. So let, let, let's, talk, let's talk modern terms. It's platinum, yeah. gold and silver. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> platinum? Platinum? <laughs> platinum exists? <laughs> It's in catalytic converters, apparently. <laughs> um, but yes, it's, it's, it's so you've got at that point, there's so many hull types at that point. All, and the thing is, they're all doing specific roles. So it's, we, we can look to the torpedo boats, but even the protected cruisers, you've got your little gunboats for showing the flag. You've got your commerce protection and scouting units. And then you've got your big first class ones, which paradoxically end up being both uh, commerce protection against the heavy uh, military surface raiders as opposed to the, the lighter ones and the, the armed merchant ships but are also kind of the linchpins of your your fleet screen and so forth and, and, it, and it all goes back and forth but then when you, when you see the era of the dreadnought come along that all gets massively compressed because you go from having first and second class battleships to your battleships you go from having. Yeah, to be fair, you have battle cruisers as well, which yeah, some of them are second class battleships, some of them are cruisers. Yeah, but they're they're kind of the evolution of the armored cruiser. So yeah. the the armored cru you've got your first and second class armored cruiser, and then now you have the battle cruiser. Your first, second, and third class protected cruisers become the the light armored cruiser, and then thence onto the armored cruiser, uh, the the light cruiser, sorry, and all the so torpedo torpedo boat categories. You basically so, so, so already, already I'm thinking you need a, a shitload of money and B, a shitload of dockyards capable of building a shitload of different ships at the same time. Mm -hmm. Excuse well, the... Well, uh, not necessarily. Excuse, uh, you're excused, but don't worry. But if you consider what Britain's currently building, we're almost getting back to that. We've got the first-class frigate, the Type 26. Mm -hmm. and we've got the second-class frigate, the Type 31. If Isn't you that consider that... There's a debate. There you go. There's the debate point. Is it a Corvette or is it a frigate? And then you have, well, considering the size it is and the size of fr frigate is based off, we're going to call it as a glass frigate. And then you've got the what the 
the French and quite a lot of Mediterranean nations are building, which is these light frigates, the La Papules. Mm. Well, so I'm probably mangling their names terrible, um, which are really quite cool. But again, they're almost an admittance that you do need some sort of gradient. You know, that there are, you do need some ships which you need are heavier than patrol ships, but you don't need the full on war fighting for or yeah. full on warship for. And honestly, that's your task force group. That's your, you know, the, the ships which are going to be, if they are in a war, they're going to be part of, they're going to be part of the defensive line in your task force inside your pickets. They're not going to be on the outer line. This sort of scenario. You can address I mean, the that. Ultimately, isn't the value of a ship how many opposing ships it can tie down? Well, not necessarily, because it's the, the, the you've you've got all the the additional uh, stuff. I mean, that's just the surface vessels. That's before you get into things like coastal submarines, fleet submarines, mine sweepers, mine mine layers, and all those other specialist roles. And I think this is the thing: it's you've got to strike a balance between we have a specialist hull for every single possible role, which is just these days is going to end up hilariously economically unaffordable. Um, but also, but at the same time, you switch back the the other extreme of trying to do too many things with too few hull types. You actually end up in a situation which I think the U.S. LCS, Navy's found LCS, itself in. Yeah, because yeah. the let's face it, with the U.S. Navy, when it comes to major combatants, okay, there's probably an argument to say you only need one type of nuclear attack sub apart from your ballistic missile subs. But on the surface, in the surface warfare aspect, you have had at one point you had the carriers, the big carriers leaving aside the amphibious stuff because that's its own little niche but you have the big carriers you have some cruisers which are, i mean let's face it that those cruisers are destroyer holes that they stuck some extra st superstructure and bits and pieces on so they're not yeah. a million miles away from the other destroyers you then have endless amounts of burks of various flights um, which very great between what you would actually call probably a proper cruiser versus yeah. something which is a light destroyer. But the the, the whole the whole sort of, as a whole type, to be honest, the the Ticonderogas and the Burks they're all much of a muchness in terms of their mm. their overall size, shape, and role. Um, visually, they look different, but they're all doing pretty much the same thing at the end of the day. So between your your, your carriers and your anti aircraft warfare escorts you have two hulls and then it was kind of we'll do everything else with lcs we'll do mines mine countermeasures uh anti-sub work and however many other bits and pieces they were trying to do off of the lcs so effectively trying to run a navy on three hull types doesn't work well, because because they had two for the lcs well yeah so that, that this is <laughs> that's, that's just this whole other special special little story but but now now you've got um you've obviously got the ffgx yeah and they're they're still trying to get honestly not cgx mark ii electric boogaloo off the ground um yeah and you got the Zumwaltz. yeah you had the, the the Zumwaltz turned out to be a little bit abortive so then if you look at the future concept and then there you've got whatever i mean they weren't going to do a one-for-one -one Zumwalt to burke replacement so there would have been a smaller destroyer of some description come along at some point as well um so at that point, you've then got, well, you got, you would have honestly not CGX governor. In theory, the Zumwaltz or something akin to the Zumwaltz, which is probably analogous to the, they probably be analogous to the Ticonderogas because CGX was supposed to be a lot bigger. Then you've got the Burks and or whatever the Burke replacement is, 
and you've then got FFGX, and then I'm sure they can find something for LCS to do. And on top of that, you're still going to need, given the the various issues with um, the modules and the technology behind LCS, and to be honest, the whole form, you're probably still going to need some form of mine countermeasures vessel, because the Avengers are pretty much dead um, now. Yes. Um, and because that's a completely different whole form, it's like you and unless you can get your, the offboard systems on an LCS to work, you're not sending an LCS in to do conventional mine sweeping unless you like not having an LCS by the end of the day. So you've now you've gone from three or four hull types to seven, possibly more. And that is probably a more balanced you maybe could afford to lose one whole type out of that if given the zumwalt's of stock production you might be able to find a an interesting hybrid between something zumwalt size and something burke size for your future destroyer but it, it is it's yeah, i think it shows firstly that you have to you have to consider your role and not try and cram multiple roles into a single hull because it's easy for a politician or somebody who's not familiar with naval architecture to just go oh yeah we'll all do it from the same ship but a lot of people seem to forget that just because it's a ship doesn't mean it's going to be good at something. Just because it floats, you need to have the, the hull itself is as much as part of the design to fulfill the role of the ship as the weapon systems that you're putting on it. Yeah, there's a reason. There's a reason we don't go. Ah, oh, yes. Well, we're just going to have a cap, a common hull, and we're going to make our carriers out of this and keep the central superstructure. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's, it's everything. You can't have a fast ship if you want to quiet a ship. Mm. Um, well, that's certainly the old the old theory. Mm. If you want to have a fast, quiet ship, it's going to cost you a lot more money. Yeah. Mm. And also, you can't have a stable ship if you want a... What was the... Manoeuvrable uh, ship? Manoeuvrable yeah. ship. And, 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 of course, stability apply, is, a different, is different things in different circumstances, isn't it? Mm. Sometimes you want your ship to bounce back up straight quickly. Um, so, you know, um, there's, there's just so many different factors at play. Uh, I get, what, you know, I guess when it comes to a carrier, yes, you only really need one hull for a carrier shape. And that's been proven by Nimitz, I suppose, hasn't it? It's been yeah. a very long lived hull for, for a very long time, largely because they could afford to build it and they're the only ones who could. But then again, I suppose you know, there's no reason why you, know, you can't. What, why would you need to redesign a Queen Elizabeth? I suppose there's mm. no real need to, unless all of a sudden there's no such thing as um, oil fuel coming out of the out of um, the Middle East for you anyway. Mm. But um, uh, when it comes to um, anti-submarine warfare, well, you know, I, I suspect that a, a Burke is nowhere near as good as a you know, type. 20... 23 at the moment, 26 in the future. They do have so, yeah. fun when they, they, they go on our exercise with the Type 23s because they sort of look at them and go, what the hell? How, how did you do that? But, and the reason for that, of course, is simply due to the noise of the water flowing around the hull. Mm. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, and on top of that, of course, the, the various insulation measures put inside the hull as well to stop the noise from inside the ship from extending outside the ship yeah. so and, and it's also to do with the with the um the sort of the diversification of roles on a single hull which is something we talked about back in the episode when we were talking about sort of arsenal ships and potential threats coming in 
is the fact that if you try and cram too many rolls in an, any given hull, if you've got a given displacement, let's say 10,000 tons, because that figure seems to crop up so many times throughout various <laughs> epochs of naval history. Um, but if you've got a 10,000 ton hull, if you're saying, oh, yes, well, we will do everything with this hull. So we're going to include a mine countermeasures section and we're going to include a towed array sonar and an active sonar and some anti-aircraft systems and some anti-shipping missiles although fair enough they may be the same thing at certain intervals plus helicopters plus radar plus uh ribs for deploying marines and stuff well there's only so much space and so much displacement so any given one of your systems is going to be lesser than somebody who goes actually i'm going to make a 10,000 ton anti-aircraft vessel and and similarly, if someone makes a 10,000 ton anti-submarine and anti-mine warfare vessel, that's going to be a lot more effective at its job. And in fact, to be honest, you could probably make a four to 5,000 ton anti-submarine vessel that would be a lot better at its job than a 10,000 ton ship that you stuck a towed array on, as well as a VLS farm and everything else. Which brings us back to our military management uh, argument of jack of all trades, master of none. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, and what do you want to do with yourself in the world? <laughs> because you, you, you can delete some of those hull types if you don't want to do that role. If you if you just want to do anti-aircraft war anti-aircraft warfare um and you want to not hunt submarines, then maybe you don't need a frigate. But Which is what to... the Americans seem to have thought for a while when when they were getting rid of all their frigates. But you've got to then accept that when someone comes at you with a submarine you you better give up pretty quickly. Well, that 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 being said, they have got their own subs to counter those other subs, haven't they? So yeah, well, you know, where, where where is that balance? Do you, do you yeah. need you've got subs as as counter subs? The the only thing I'd point out there is that frigates and other surface escorts have a long and very storied history of successfully prosecuting submarines and safeguarding their 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 surface groups there have been precisely two underwater engagements of submarine versus submarine one in world war one which was a ended up with a, a dud torpedo bouncing off somebody's hull and making some germans very angry and a second one in world war two which you can loosely describe as underwater technically both submarines were underwater but they were pretty much at periscope depth um so whilst there is a lot obviously technology has advanced we have homing torpedoes passive sonar active sonar towed arrays etc there's been an awful lot of work done since world war ii ultimately at the end of the day the idea of submarines hunting other submarines in wartime is yet to be proven no one's that, actually that, tried yeah, um, well, well <laughs> I don't, I mean, haven't they i mean the point is is that there's been a lack of opportunity to pull the trigger. There's been no lack of opportunity to uh, track, you know, seek, locate, and prosecute without pulling the trigger. But to be fair, you could you going into World War Two, you could say the same thing about ASDIC. You could say, True. well, we've got we've had ten, twenty years to 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 track our enemy. Uh, well our own submarines pretending to be the enemy and we're confident we can sweep the seas of enemy U-boats very quickly because we have ASDIC now and then it turns it in wartime. It doesn't actually work the way you thought it did. Um, we at least know how to hunt and kill submarines with frigates. And and to be perfectly honest, um, 
frigates are cheaper than submarines. <laughs> yeah, they uh, are. I they are a, a lot cheaper. Even a Type 26 yeah. is going to be a lot cheaper than an Astute. So if you're in the realms of saying, well, we're not going to have frigates because we don't want to do anti-submarine warfare, most navies are probably not going to be in the in the market for a, an attack. Yeah, but you so know, then, then again, yeah, once, even with frigates, you get you know what you call bracket creep. Um, mm. Let's look at let's look at the Royal Australian Navy's um, Hunter class, the next generation, based on your Type Twenty Six. Type Twenty Six. Um, they're now looking at the ten thousand ton version. There's that. There's that ten thousand yeah. ton displacement figure again. <laughs> yeah, it, it does like to turn up. And let, let's be honest. The, the, let's so quite, we've got the, that's we've because got they the... want to take a they want to take a, an anti-submarine warfare frigate and they want to turn it into a general purpose frigate with a good air defence system. That's Which is exactly what we're saying is a bad idea. <laughs> that that yeah. involves a, a very heavy Australian-developed uh, radar, radar system. So that's sitting up high in the ship, which means you've got to provide the stability for it. Um, yeah, 10,000 tonnes. HMAS Australia, HMAS Canberra, HMAS Shropshire, World War II. Could be cruisers. Yeah. So, you know, and sound-class cruisers. What the hell is in the name? Yeah, well, I'd say this. This is what comes down to down to your whole type. You have to be clear about what you're doing, otherwise you're going to end up in a situation where you find you can't actually do any of your jobs particularly well, and then things go very badly wrong. And then it turns out that yes, you might have saved maybe two hundred million dollars by ordering one clutch design instead of two separate, slightly smaller, more specialist designs. But if you've I don't know if you spend 1.8 billion Australian dollars on a ship that ends up at the bottom of the ocean because it got overwhelmed by silkworms, then your 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 cost is out a bit compared to having spent two billion Australian dollars on a ship that actually just blew all the silkworms away and let the other ship go off to hunt some uh, Chinese attack subs. And the point yeah, I think was sort of the thing is that in nice way. Didn't the Australians build an area air defence destroyer recently? I'm thinking it's called. Yeah, the, we did. Isn't it called the Hobart class? Mm. Yeah, which based on the based on the um, we only built three of them, of course. Um, yeah, which has, been, which has been our tradition for um, our anti-aircraft uh, destroyers for several decades now. Um, but look, you know, it, it, that's what I'm just thinking here. The Hunter is starting to look as though it's just a general-purpose destroyer. Named a frigate in order to for budgetary purposes. Yeah, you know, yeah, for, for budgetary purposes, it's kind of like building a through deck cruiser. Mm. You know, why, why not call yeah. it a destroyer? Why not call it a general purpose destroyer? If it's or a ten- large, large light cruiser, Admiral Fisher. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, well, yeah, you know, name, names names have just become so meaningless. It's. Do you have any bellicose, very shouty Australian admirals who may or may not be planning to raise the superstructure on these things after a few years and turn them into small aircraft carriers? Because I'm beginning <laughs> to see some parallels. Well, look, there, you know, there was actually a very interesting proposal a few decades ago, or a decade or so ago, to um, build our next generation of um, uh, fleet oilers as basically flat deck reserve flight decks mm. yeah. to, 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 to slap helicopters on, to slap as anti-submarine, to, to, to land um, F-35s on when they run low on fuel. Mm. And to me, you know, to me, it seemed, sounded like a no-brainer, but of course we haven't gone that way. But then again, I'm, I'm, I'm no engineer, so uh, I mean, me, calling it, me calling it a no-brainer is um, you know, uh, akin to disaster straight away. I mean, heli- helicop- I- helicopters I can kind of see. 
the the very 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 tiny part of me that has anything to do with safety is somewhere down in the depths of my soul screaming in agony at the thought of let, let's put a flight deck and try and land a fast jet fighter with a oh, propensity no, to occasionally again, crash on a boiler because that will end really only, well <laughs> i think my only, suggestion was to use is. the solid store ships for the royal yeah. navy as auxiliary escorts carriers Burn as easily. I mean, to be honest, when, when you're talking about in an emergency, it's like, well, in an emergency situation is probably the last point you want to be directing a fast <laughs> jet, a, a ship good. full of it. Actually, you product. my theory was in an emergency situation, if you had that as one option, you could have the uh, aircraft, which is in the emergency, land on the main carrier. Hmm. And the auxiliary carrier could keep the other aircraft, which if they need to come in, could sort them out and take them. Let's, no, let's put it this way. I think it's got to be better than landing with your nose wheel on a shipping container and your back wheel on a Chinook. Like, what was the situation with the Atlantic convert? Well, no, it wasn't like with with the um, in the Falklands where the Harrier landed on the shipping container, the container ship. No, that was no, that was just after the Falklands. One of the Harriers on exercise got lost and ended up perching on a uh, perching on a Spanish uh, freighter. Because it was the right, only yes. solid solid object in sight. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So basically, and then, yeah, and then they invoked what's in the 18th century laws of marine salvage. <laughs> so this is like you've got to keep the plane. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. This, but, yeah, but, but, yeah, this is what we mean. This is what this is what the giving them a flat deck was. Look, the point is, guys. Well, I think we're way over time. Um, well, uh, we're uh, about, uh, about, about an hour and twin, fifteen hour and twenty in. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, I, think, I think we can finish this one off. Well, yeah. but, you know, it's think... case of Karen. So, 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 tell me, guys, what do you think? A ten thousand ton hunter class frigate is it a cruiser or is it a frigate? At that point, it's not really. It, it's an overgrown abomination. At that point, <laughs> uh, is what it is. I mean, it, it comes. I think that comes around briefly to what we were talking about just before we started recording about the fact that, to be perfectly honest. A joint Canadian-Australian-British design bureau for future warship development would probably do everybody a world of good. Because <laughs> until you actually see what comes out the other end. <laughs> well, the thing is, the, the main the main thing that everybody wants is that they want to keep build shipyard building jobs in their countries. Their yes. the cost the the cost the money invested back in the economy of designing a ship is vastly less than the actual building of it and the building of the systems. There's and, more to it than just that, though. There is the, yeah. the idea of resiliency. You need to be able yeah. to repair the ship that, you build, that you're operating. Yeah. That's what I mean. So it's, it's, it's the, this, this, the actual physical infrastructure side, that's where people want to keep that in country. The design part of it, as long as you trust the other people you're working with, with the best one in the world, you don't you're not going to be saving like thousands of jobs and reinvesting hundreds of millions into the economy if your design team is two people less because you happen to have brought in a couple of people from from overseas and if you look at the if you look at the roles it's like australia needs long distance ships capable of hunting enemy submarines and hunting and defending against aircraft Britain needs long range vessels capable of hunting submarines and defending against aircraft canada needs Okay, maybe they don't need so much the air defence part of it, but they certainly need anti-submarine stuff, and they probably do need anti-aircraft defence if they can be 
someone can persuade them to pay for it they they do rely a little bit too much on being america's hat i think um but it's a it's a nice safety blanket for them that yeah and and the other thing is especially looking at some of the issues with the type 45 power plant canada is very cold australia is very warm if the joint design bureau has to design a ship that's equally capable of operating in the high arctic or the uh, the middle of the pacific we might actually get a ship that won't overheat when it goes into the gulf um so you yeah, know it, it would make a lot of sense perhaps, and that's got the economies perhaps. of scale no, that, that sounds great but then let's look at the hunter here we are taking a british design and modifying it yeah We're but that's been on a new set of radar to suit what has been deemed to be our needs. But that's because nobody, that's because no, this is because it's the, not the joined up thinking. The, the British have built the Type 45s and now we're not building the Type 45. So there's no anti-aircraft destroyer currently in production. And with the time that's gone between the end of production of the Type 45s and now there's probably new systems they'd want to bring in, like the Australian radar. We've built or well, designed the Type 26. So now people are saying, oh, well, we'll take this Type 26. But the Type 26 was designed for the Royal Navy. Australia might have different needs. And so they're trying to adapt a design. And even the Canadian versions are being adapted somewhat. Um, and all of this is involving extra expense, extra time, <laughs> extra effort. Extra risk. Extra risk, and exactly. It may not, may not work out quite as well as they think. Whereas if if they all sat down and said, actually, you know what? we're going to jointly design this anti-aircraft warfare destroyer and we're going to jointly design this anti-submarine frigate then each nation can you can factor in the the various requirements and if you have to design a what well, type 48 or whatever we're going to call it and we just say right here's our whole design here's our where the missiles go and here, here's a dotted line space which is just marked insert radar here so if you want to drop in the Australian radar, if you want to drop in at, Samson to whatever, exploit. yeah, <laughs> then yeah. then you can. Then that means everyone's got a similar design, everyone's got a similar supply chain, and everyone um, can go off and build however many they want. But the economies of scale are there because if you've if you if if Britain but needs then, six and Canada needs four and Australia needs three, or that's what they can afford. But with the economies of scale, if it turns out that actually building 15, you save 20 percent on the overall per unit cost, then, well, either it's cost saving, in which case that will make the, the, the budget counters very happy. Uh, but if it's if if you've got a, a budget and you're like, we want X billion dollars worth of um, anti-aircraft warfare ship, you might be able to get a fourth ship or, or, you get a get, or a se- exactly. Yeah. You might get either more ships or. Better ships for the same price, but then Canada, Canada goes and takes over Washington again, and we can't talk to them. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> well, you know, we can talk to them if the if Canadians take over Washington again. Let's be honest; the odds are the Australians and the Brits are with them because Washington's really annoyed them. <laughs> anyway, at that point, I think we probably better call it a night. Mm-hmm. Well, at that point, Australia gets Hawaii. Mm. <laughs> Why? Oh, look, I, I, our current prime minister would absolutely love that. I think. Mm. Yes. Greater yeah. Australia. <laughs> <laughs> look, right forget, forget Hawaii. Uh, why don't we just go for a, a few of your Channel Islands? Eh? Yeah. <laughs> be fun. All right. Just... Oh, thank you. As always, it's been a massive pleasure. 
Um, thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Drac. Thank you, listeners. It's always wonderful to have you here. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of Bill Trumps, and more are coming because we, thanks to the word which we do not say, the nation we do, we try to avoid mentioning. There is a never-ending stream of articles cut that are, that have come out, and we can talk about. <laughs> Thanks to their particular publication called the Global Times, we will never be short of a pro- of something to discuss or bitch about. Mm-hmm. Ryan, thank you. And right. okay. Catch you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout 